Hey everyone, before we get started with today's podcast, wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Black BX. Running a pub, restaurant, or retail business? Black BX lets you offer awesome Wi-Fi, gives you powerful insights and epic experience to your customers. Get started with a free trial today. BlackBX.io slash TTP. Tell them this is the president sent you. Now on with the podcast. Hello? Uh, Mr. President? Yes. This is Dick Nixon. Yes, Dick. I just wanted you to know that uh, any uh, any uh, rumblings around about uh, somebody uh, trying to uh, sabotage Saigon government's attitude, there certainly have no, absolutely no credibility as far as I'm concerned. I'd, I'd, I'm very happy to hear that, Dick. Yes, ma'am, I read you loud and clear. Yes, ma'am, this is... Yes, ma'am, this is... This is the president. Hey everyone, Scott here. Thanks for tuning in to This is the President, episode 36, 1968. LBJ's worst year ever. Uh, Harmon's actually out of the country. He's over in Wellington, New Zealand, performing at the Fringe Festival there. So I've enlisted a special guest, Kyle Longley, professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University, who is the author of LBJ's 1968, Power, Politics, and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. And that's the time with the 50th anniversary of LBJ's speech where he announced that he wouldn't be running for re-election in 1968, which will be 50 years ago today, March 31st, 1968. It was a fantastic talk. Kyle had a lot of great things to say. So pop a beverage, get ready, sit back, and listen to LBJ's 1968 Worst Year Ever. I'm Kyle Longley. I'm a professor of history and political science at Arizona State University. Uh, I have spent the last 20-something years, more than two decades, here at Arizona State, and I've published now eight books, uh, ranging in topics from U.S.-Latin American relations to biography of Senator Albert Gore Sr., strong interest in Latin, uh, Latin America as well as Reagan presidency, and finally, uh, the last few books are directly related to combat soldiers in Vietnam, and of course this book, LBJ's 1968. Wow, okay, interesting. So um, that was going to be my next question, but you handled that very well. Uh, so why, after all those other books, why concentrate on LBJ? Well, I think there's several reasons. Uh, major ones, I was raised in Central Texas. Uh, everywhere you go, LBJ's name is there, uh, whether it be the library, whether it be the lake, uh, there's Lake Ladybird. Uh, everything that you see there in Central Texas, especially the imprint of Lyndon Johnson is uh, on it each and every day. So I think uh, living there for a few years, you just uh, came to appreciate what it was done. And, of course, then you blended in with Vietnam. Um, I work on Senator Gore, uh, who was a contemporary of uh, President Johnson. And you have a wonderful topic, and then you've blended into 1968, a year that, you know, the president called a year of a continuous nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Which wow, that that was a segue uh, straight straight from heaven. But so while we talk about that, why don't you tell me what made 1968 so different specifically? I mean, what was going on? Well, I think there's a culmination of events that sort of have been building since 1965. Uh, we're going to see the race issues related to the assassination of Martin Luther King, which explode into riots. But those had been building since Watts. 
uh, Newark and Detroit the year before in the summer of 1967. Of course, Vietnam is central to the whole uh, affair. Uh, Vietnam being the thing that, you know, really brings the Johnson presidency down. Uh, after a very strong run in 64 or 65 regarding the Great Society, Vietnam is the Achilles heel. And I think that's what you see sort of blow up that year. You know, you have Pueblo, then you have Tet, then you have the assassinations of King and Bobby Kennedy, uh, the riots in uh, Chicago, the invasion of Czechoslovakia, and finally the election itself. Again, the president is... Again, the greatest characterization, a year of a continuous nightmare, and I think most Americans shared that view. As far as to go back to Vietnam, as you mentioned, you said you've done some uh, other writing on Vietnam. It, from what you, your research, do you think there could have been in an America, do you think if America had just kept pouring troops in, do you think it would have been a victory? Or what no. do you think the outcome would have been? Well, and I think this is made in the third chapter of the book. When Tet breaks out, uh, Westmoreland and General Wheeler, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, come to LBJ and they say, all right, we need 206,000 more troops. LBJ's immediate question is, will this win? And they said, no. They said, you know, 206,000 more will help us stabilize, maybe hold on to the northern provinces, but they cannot assure him any kind of victory. And I think that's where Reagan, or, or in this case, this is where Johnson just sort of says, all right, enough is enough. He gives them 30,000 and says stabilize it and then commits himself to peace as well as Vietnamization of the war. So I, you know, uh, the, the problem is the North Vietnamese were able to bring about 200,000 young men each year into draft age. So to break even, you were going to have to kill 200,000. So if you just look at it, you know, if the Joint Chiefs and the uh, Westmoreland are saying, if we get it up to 750,000, we still can't assure a victory, then, you know, what is the number? And then how does that affect our global standing in Western Europe, uh, Korea, all throughout the world? So uh, that's a major question that the book addresses. Right. I think this is from the um, kind of that, that part of the book. This is kind of the first thing that kind of stuck out at me because I'm, I'm a big fan of history, so I've done a lot of reading on this subject. I am, I am from 1968, so, so the, 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 the headline of the, the title of the book was interesting to me. And um, one of the yeah one of the first things that stuck out was uh, if you could recall the uh, the Arthur Goldberg incident from um, that part of the book where they're talking about the um, the troops in Vietnam or the the Vietnam um, quagmire the the U S he was the U S ambassador to the U S yeah he was U S ambassador to the U N yeah I mean where Goldberg's just sitting there going you know you got uh, Abe Fortas and other hawks in the room and Goldberg's just going, guys, come on, it's over. Uh, you know, the one that really to me was the poignant one is when Harry McPherson and Califano go to the meeting, uh, right in March and, uh, you know, McPherson walks out and goes, you know, or Califano, I forget which one and goes, that was the most depressing meeting I've ever seen in my life. And he asked the question, is it over? And the answer is yes, it's over. And by that point, you know, that chapter three on Tet, I think, really just stands out uh, as far as just making the point of it's just the culmination of everything that's been building since 1965. And Goldberg and the others are just and even, you know, Dean Acheson is head of the wise men when he gives that final sort of uh, statement to the president and says it's over. You need to find something else. It's not going the way we're uh, where we can win in a satisfactory way. Right. Could you, excuse me, could you tell me a little bit about the wise men, who exactly they were, and what was their function? 
Well, the function of this is it was a group of basically distinguished diplomats and politicians, people including Douglas Dillon, who came out of Eisenhower's uh, Secretary of Treasury, and, of course, Dean Acheson, sort of the dean of the uh, diplomats in the Cold War period. And they'd been created to basically advise the president. And uh, six months earlier, they had advised that progress looked like it was being made. But after they get the reports after Tet uh, from the CIA, from the DOD, they just come to the conclusion this is just not going well and it's not going to end well. And we're also seeing by early 1968 the effects that's happening on the economy, uh, the removal from the gold standard. You know, we're just moving along the gold crisis uh, in uh, March of 68. So the president's sitting there going, one, I'm going to have to raise taxes, which is not going to work in election year, and two, you know, it's just not doing well for the economy. And, of course, it's undermining his great society. So uh, by the end of March, uh, under the advice of the wise man, there's a number of factors that are coming into play. He finally makes the decision not to seek re-election. And we were celebrating the anniversary tomorrow of that uh, momentous decision not to seek re-election so that he can focus on trying to win a peace in Vietnam. Right. Yeah, I want to get into that into a little bit more detail in just a second here. Yeah. On that, um, but to go back to that, this is the, one of the things like, that I think uh, you, uh, LBJ used one of his, uh, he used a visual aid when he was talking to Arthur Goldberg about the Vietnam, about Vietnam. Yeah. Okay, well, could you yeah, tell that, me about that? I, 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 that was one where, you know, I, I don't know the exact date of that, but it's the one where the press basically are harassing the president. And, you know, asking, why are we in Vietnam? Why are we in Vietnam? And, of course, Johnson, in sort of his crass manner, just unzips his pants and pulls out his penis and starts flopping it around, saying, this is why we're in Vietnam. And, I mean, that just, <laughs> one, is just a, a visual that I, I don't know if I really want to uh, see. And, two, it just makes the point how frustrated the president was and, you know, how Vietnam had just become central to his life. So, I, yeah, I think that is just, well, that's one of the funniest, saddest stories uh, combination in the book. Yeah, that was, because uh, I, you know, I'd never heard about that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Let me check that footnote. Um, yeah. on, on that, um, cause I think, uh, let's, I think we should concentrate on kind of the beginning of the year, uh, yeah. cause to me, that's just kind of interesting. If you could, so there was another, in between all this other stuff, um, then he had the, the Pueblo incident. Well, I've used this. This is a fascinating, uh, North Koreans, uh, seized one of our intelligence ships just off their coast and held 82 American sailors hostage for almost a year. And Johnson was determined to try to uh, basically negotiate because his argument is this is the frustration. They take the ship, they take in a lot of our intelligence gathering uh, material, which they turn over immediately to the Soviet Union, and Johnson and them have really no options other than just to wait them out and show patience. Now, there were people calling for attacks on North Korea, but, you know, as Johnson made the point time and time again, if I attack, uh, those 82 Americans are dead. And that sort of defeats the purpose. So he had to, you know, basically ride it out. And in December, they finally uh, released the hostages. But, you know, it comes back to this fundamental question. Uh, They couldn't figure out why they did it then and why the North Koreans had basically chosen to seize the ship at that particular point. Of course, Johnson blames it the North Koreans are trying to help the North Vietnamese, but I think it's far more complex than most people argue it's far more complex than that. But it just shows you 
uh, how long the North Koreans have sort of been tweaking with us and trying to, you know, basically play mind games. And, you know, Nixon was very critical of Johnson's handling of this. And then, of course, a few months into the Nixon presidency, they shot down one of our spy planes, killing 31 Americans. So, you know, that is it just shows you the North Koreans have been a constant thorn in the side. Uh, continuing through the day. And, you know, Kim Jong-un, uh, this was his grandfather playing that game. Yeah. Well, so have you, have you seen any, has there been any recently declassified documents about the Pueblo incident that might shed any more light or any kind of new information? No, not really. Uh, there's some wonderful books. Mitch Lerner has done a wonderful book on the Pueblo that I recommend highly. Uh, but what happens is the, the real story is we don't understand the North Korean side. I don't know when we're going to ever be able to figure that side of it out. Uh, so, you know, that's the part of the equation. The American side has been pretty much released. Uh, the Johnson administration, I mean, President Johnson was very good about this and saying, I want my materials out there after we leave the presidency. And of course, you know, there's still classified documents, but the Johnson administration, as opposed to like the Reagan library, has been very slow to release documents. Johnson was on the other extreme and has been very uh, quick to release the documents. And again, so no quick, no, no new information there. Again, we're waiting on the North Korean side and God only knows when that's going to occur. Right. Yeah. So, so back to what you were talking about before about, uh, Johnson's, uh, March speech, the anniversary of which is tomorrow. Um, so you, you've got Tet, you've got this Pueblo happen, you get the Pueblo incident happening, then comes March. So what, what's Johnson's reasoning for having this speech? Well, I think, you know, what's interesting, and a number of people who have pointed it out to me, they didn't realize he had actually prepared a statement for the State of the Union to announce that he would not seek re-election. But at the last moment, he pulled it out. Uh, so there's a lot of things playing out. Uh, you know, you've got Tet, you got the pressures of Vietnam, you got the pressures of the race riots that had occurred in the summer of 1967. Of course, they're not anticipating what's going to happen only a few days after March 31st when King is assassinated. But you got that. But really one that a lot of people don't know about is it was his health decisions. Uh, this was a man that walked by Woodrow Wilson's portrait. And when he'd sit there and stand there, he had this great fear of becoming Woodrow Wilson, who had been incapacitated by a stroke. And he had this great fear of sitting in the White House and being upstairs incapacitated, unable to perform his duties as president. And he had a family history. His grandmother had a stroke. And, of course, he had his first major coronary in 1955. How old was he then, yeah? Uh, just mid-40s. Okay, And wow. had this major coronary where he almost died. He flatlined at one point. And uh, so that always played in his, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, calculus for this decision. But, of course, there were other things, you know, uh, some like to argue that it was uh, Eugene McCarthy putting pressure on him because he came so close to him in the uh, New Hampshire primary. Personally, I dismissed that. I dismissed this idea that Johnson wouldn't have loved to take it on Bobby Kennedy uh, when he announces after McCarthy sort of shows the chinks in the armor. Uh, but I really put it back to that. It was a personal decision related many times. And, you know, related also to just wanting to clear up the Vietnam mess and try to settle that before he left office because he knew that was the stain on his presidency. Yeah, I mean, that was actually, I, I misread my own question because, yeah, that was what I, that was, um, what you, what you mentioned there about the state, how he was going to announce his resignation during the State of the Union speeches. I'd never heard that before. Can you, uh, was it actually written in there or did other people know about this? Can we talk about that just a little bit? Deeper? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had had Horace Busby, his former speechwriter, who had written most of his famous speeches, 
come to the White House and work with Lady Bird and the press secretary, George Christian, to prepare this statement. And it was kept separate. It wasn't on the teleprompter. He was just going to pull it out, and it was written separately. But he decided at the last moment to leave it behind. And I think this is important to keep in mind, too, with the March 31st speech, because he, uh, you know, he was asked, when did you finally make the decision not to seek re-election? And the speech that he started that night started at 9 o'clock, and he admits at 9.01 is when he finally made the uh, decision to basically uh, pull the trigger and announce his decision not to seek re-election. So he could have dropped that off on that speech when he was talking about Vietnam on March 31st, but he finally decided to go through. So there were people who knew about it, again, uh, close people like Horace Busby, of course, Lady Bird. But he, you know, he had announced a number of times he was going to step back. He did it right before the uh, uh, Atlantic City Convention in 1964, where he's like, "I'm just going to go away" because he got tired of the uh, dealings with the uh, Mississippi delegation. Mm-hmm. So there had been a number of times in his political career where he'd sort of threatened, but he'd never followed through. So many people were, I mean, it shocked the nation. Uh, it was a dramatic shock to the nation. People, I'm sure, were just looking at each other going, did we really hear what we think we just heard? And, you know, I know, and I ask people a lot of times, do you remember that? And most of the people, you know, uh, of age do remember it and go, we were completely shocked and completely surprised. Yeah, there's a great picture in the book where I think they're watching the the rebroadcast of the speech. I think it's Lucy sitting on the couch behind uh, the president, and you can just see her face. You know, just yeah. just re- kind of reliving the moment. That's pretty, uh, pretty uh, telling, right there. Um, okay, so after, so we, we've got we've got the, uh, the so you know, LBJ resigns, uh, and just a few days later, um, there's another big event that kind of helped shape the year. Yeah, the assassination uh, of Martin Luther King just blows up everything. Johnson actually had on the March 31st speech had uh, taken his negatives from. Well, he he had a positive rating of 37%. Overnight, it goes to 67%. But five days later, when uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated, it just blows up again. And you see Johnson having to basically try to uh, create law and order. Sometimes the fire is reaching within 10 blocks of the White House. So, you know, it's... Uh, riots are breaking out in D.C., Chicago, Baltimore, all throughout the country. And, you know, the country just appears to come in part at the seams. And some are fearful that it's going to be uh, a race war. And Johnson tries to uh, manage that and tries to keep keep it from accelerating. Because they'd watched the year before in Detroit, especially the race riots in the summer of 67, and tried to learn some lessons. So, you know, when they send troops into D.C., for the most part, they're not even issued ammunition, which leads some of the congressmen to complain. I mean, uh, Bird, uh, Robert Bird from West Virginia complains that they don't have bullets because he wants them to shoot the looters on site, although he only wants them to shoot them in the knees. Uh, so, you know, you've got this pressure, but Johnson is definitely trying to hold, uh, the line on the issue. And, you know, he actually commiserates in many ways with the Reiners going, you know, basically if I'd seen someone shoot Martin Luther King, I'd probably come out fighting too, because I think they were out to get all of us. And so he actually shows some empathy and tries to create some programs. And ultimately what he does uh, use this assassination to do is push through the Civil Rights Act of 68 regarding fair housing. Right. I mean, that's what, you know, we're, as we mentioned, we're both kind of from Texas, and, and you grow up around, and you hear a lot about Johnson. People, I think a lot of people realize that he's a pretty progressive for, you know, a, a middle-aged white guy from Texas at, at the time. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, you look at Johnson Civil Rights uh, Acts. I mean, they are the far uh, more than any president accomplished uh, since Reconstruction. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights of 65. Of course, he's not doing it by himself, but he is a Southern Democrat who's trying to hold the Democratic Party co- uh, coalition together, which includes racist Democrats in the South who, uh, uh, you know, as he says in 1964, he says, I just gave the Democratic Party away in the South for many uh, generations because mm-hmm. of signing the Civil Rights Act. So he's trying to balance that. Uh, but he is very progressive. You look at the Great Society, it's probably the most uh, progressive um, policies and you know, since uh, the New Deal. And if you look today, many of the policies that are being attacked are those of the Great Society, Medicare, uh, civil rights, environmental rules. I mean, it was a pretty, 64, 65 was a very heady time. And Johnson was, I, I argue, he's more of a populist progressive than a liberal, mm-hmm. uh, which puts him at odds with people in the Northeast oftentimes as he's trying to keep the coalition together. But he definitely is a very populist progressive. And I, I, you know, you have to understand central uh, Texas politics to have a very good understanding of this man and what he was trying to accomplish. But the Great Society and the War on Poverty, unfortunately, he decided to fight a war in Vietnam that undermined both. Yeah, exactly. Um, to go back uh, to kind of just stay on the right just for a little bit, because as uh, as you know, you're here on this as a president, and what we do here a lot of times is listen to presidential phone calls, and so I'm kind of interested in this kind of stuff. And there was one incident during the riots that uh, kind of leapt out at me, being uh, in regards to the show. Do you, do you recall the uh, General Harold Johnson phone call during the riots? Do you recall that incident? Yeah. Okay, could you tell yeah. tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, that's classic. You know, the president's calling the uh, general who is going to be in charge of the troops that are overseeing the occupation of Washington, D.C. And he's complaining, you know, he's talking to him, just giving him earful, telling him, don't let your troops fire. I don't want this to escalate. And then the president slams down the phone. Uh, with several advisors in there, and he complains bitterly. He says, I just was trying to talk to the general, and the general just admitted to me on this secure line that he couldn't hear me. So now he's going out to try to find a payphone so that he could call me back. So he says, as commander-in-chief of the largest and the most uh, expensive army in the world, I can't even get a line to my own commanders. And so that is that stands out as of a failure uh, and Johnson's frustrations over not being able to do this, you know, deal with this situation and the challenges that occur when you have these major disturbances occur. Moving on just for a little bit, um, let's talk about the relationship between RFK and LBJ. There's a wonderful book called Mutual Contempt, and uh, it talks about the relationship. The, the, the subtitle of the book is something like to the order of the rivalry or the feud that defined the gener- uh, or defined the 1960s. And so I recommend that highly for a lot of good information. But yeah, the 1960 Bobby didn't want LBJ on the, um, you know, the, the ticket. Uh, that was John's decision. And there is no love lost between these two men. You know, Robert Kennedy is basically JFK's hatchet man. And, you know, I know Chris Matthews and these guys try to portray uh, RFK as, you know, more saintly than he definitely was. You know, even father Joe Kennedy says, you know, Jack's a good guy, but Bobby's my son. And Bobby will cut your throat in a heartbeat. And, you know, they just don't like each other. And Bobby looks down on LBJ, and LBJ is resentful. And then when he becomes president, you know, the tensions there as uh, attorney general, 
Um, I just viewed the uh, new play by Robert Shenkin called The Great Society, and they have it down pretty well, that Bobby Kennedy and Johnson just did not like each other. It was a political feud uh, unlike uh, many in our history. So they don't like each other, and I mean the best sort of example in the book that I give of this is a few days after LBJ announces that he's not going to seek re-election, Bobby shows up to try to say to the president, well, I don't want you to uh, support Anybody in, and will you release people to support me? They're in your cabinet. And they have this conversation going back and forth. And LBJ's taping it. But later they get up uh, from the table and uh, Bobby leaves. And LBJ says, well, play back the tape on this. Bobby had brought in a scrambler. And there is no uh, record of the tape other than what had been written by one of the aides that was sitting there. Uh-huh. So they did not like each other. They did not trust each other. Uh, and but you know I talk about it in the uh, in the book. Uh, when Bobby is killed, LBJ does show a side that many people don't see, and that is one of the compassionate side where he does definitely feel for the family, and he does go out of his way to try to help them in their time of grief. And um, again, it's a compassionate side that is not often seen. Uh, of course, uh, that he still hates Bobby, uh, and the Bobby people hate him uh, for all he represents. Uh, but, you know, it is a feud that di- uh, defines that uh, a decade. Right. And I, I agree with that characterization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, if we So, yeah, let's kind of keep moving on here. So that kind of brings us through June. So what are yeah. we looking at towards, let's say, towards July, let's say before the elections? I mean, what, what's going on in LBJ's world there? Well, his, his world is, and I spent a lot of time in the, uh, you know, I don't cover everything in the book. Right. Because it, it's, you know, I pick out, uh, major issues that are being discussed. And I think the one that stands out to me in that period of the summer of 1968, of course, is the nomination of Abe Fortas as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and Homer Thornberry to fill his position. And we see the first major battle in what we today sort of accept as the Supreme Court is going to be politicized. But in this case, uh, Johnson nominates Fortas. Uh, to move from uh, associate justice to chief justice, and then brings on a what many call a crony uh, in the form of Homer Thornberry to fill that position, and it's, it it does not go well from the beginning. The major argument is going to be made by Robert Griffith, the senator, uh, junior senator from Michigan, is this should not be a decision made by the president; it should be made by the next president. And boy, does that resonate with our <laughs> understanding! And you know, ultimately, they kill it. Fortis helps the process because he's too close to the president. He's crossed a lot of ethical lines, as did the president, in a uh, sitting Supreme Court justice and the role they played with the White House. Uh, he also gets caught up in a scandal involving money being paid out for his time teaching at American University by people who have business in front of the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of things at play here. But what it does show us and what it does set up for us is this politicization of the Supreme Court. So I think that summer of 68, that's the part that I really emphasize. And, of course, carrying it into August uh, with the Czechoslovakian crisis and the Russian Warsaw Pact coming into Czechoslovakia once more, following basically the guidelines that they'd followed in 56 with Hungary. And then, of course, the Democratic National Convention, where everything just blows up. Yeah, let's, let's talk, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what was, I mean, this is the one, this is, you know, televised around the world, you know, the, the marching in the streets in Chicago. What was, what was LBJ's position, like, taking all this in? Did he, was he trying to, uh, you know, calm the situation any or 
what was the no. take on it? Yeah. This is a great weakness of his. And, of course, it all revolves around Vietnam. What had happened is, you know, what's going on in the streets is one thing. What's going on on the floor of the convention is equally as important uh, for how people are viewing this. Uh, you know, the Democrats are basically proving, uh, Will Rogers, uh, you know, characterization of the Democratic Party is, I'm not a member of an organized party, I'm a Democrat. Uh, and that came up on the floor. But what had happened is Johnson had sort of guided this. Uh, Humphrey wanted to move the, uh, you know, convention to Miami, but Johnson stayed with, uh, Mayor Daly in Chicago, which was a mistake. Uh, because it made it easier for all the protesters to get to a place. You know, they would have to travel much further to get to Miami, and the Republicans that had already run it in Miami and had been able to show that, you know, uh, you could run it without all the problems. But, boy, did they create the problems here. But Johnson had created it because he refused to give up control of the convention. And then what happens is Humphrey is able to fashion a compromise on the Vietnam plank for the Democratic platform, and Johnson blows it up. And ultimately, we know that leads to the confrontations on the floor, as well as what's going on outside, which just to the American people demonstrate that the Democrats are tied to this lack of law and order, which Richard Nixon is using as a fundamental part of his campaign. Right. So what, um, as, as far as you were talking about the battles on the floor inside, could you point out a, a specific one or one incident that you think kind of uh, highlighted the situation? Well, I'm going to go back, and it, it may not be as much related directly to that. Again, yeah. I, the, when he blew up the platform, uh, the Vietnam plank on the platform, that was, you know, it, it was a kiss of death. But what was interesting is Johnson still, in his own mind, had this belief that he might be invited to Chicago to receive the nomination because they saw Humphrey as too weak. And he had it in his mind he was going to go up until the last day uh, fly up and sort of swoop in. Now, most of his aides close to him say that he would not have accepted the nomination had he been uh, get, uh, offered it, but he wanted to be offered it. And it is a sad, sad uh, picture of him back in uh, Johnson City or, in, you know, in his home in Stonewall, uh, sitting there waiting for that call and it never coming. And then celebrating his birthday, which they'd actually, some of the people had planned to have a big sky, uh, you know, a big, uh, you know, uh, celebration there in Chicago to honor the president. And it never occurred. And it's, it's one of the saddest sort of parts of this book that you sit this man, the most powerful man in the world expecting that. And then it just not happening and just further contributing to this downward spiral that we're going to see uh, occur after that. Well, what we see is in the election, uh, Johnson doesn't play much of an active role in toward the end. And one of the best chapters and the one I've been receiving a lot of good feedback on as far as a good synthesis uh, is, you know, how he responded to the Nixon, uh, Nixon campaign's interference in the peace process, uh, the Chenault affair that we characterize. My God, I would never do anything to, to, to encourage Hanoi, I mean, Saigon not to come to the table because basically, that was what you got out of your bombing pause. That good God, we want them over Paris. We've got to get them to Paris or you can't have a peace. Well, I think if you take that position, you're on very, very sound ground. And what I, said I think it's very much in the I, interest I said, of you. I said that the major thing that the president insisted upon and got was the right of Saigon to be at that conference. And, you know, Johnson could have at the last moment basically pulled the trigger and highlighted that the Nixon 
uh, White House or the Nixon uh, campaign was actively interfering in this peace process that we, they were trying to have in Paris. Uh, and they, uh, you know, wiretapped the South Vietnamese embassy. They uh, wiretapped the uh, presidential palace in South Vietnam. And ultimately, they wiretapped uh, Anna Chenault, who was working with the uh, Nixon campaign, uh, to tell the South Vietnamese, hold out, don't participate. We'll give you a better deal. And, you know, Johnson's just sitting there trying to figure it out. What do I do? And, again, if this doesn't resonate with readers today, I don't know what will as far as foreign interference or, you know, active interference by one of the campaigns working with uh, to undermine a process. And so, you know, you see Johnson do that. But where I think it really comes to it, and, of course, we know Humphrey is closing the gap. And had Johnson maybe pulled that trigger, he would have been able to, you know, shift the election. But he chose not to. One, he would have to give up his uh, sources, which he didn't really want to have to admit to. And two, he didn't want to damage the presidency uh, and definitely the uh, office of the presidency. And ultimately, though, <laughs> it was destroyed in its own way by what Nixon did. And the Chenault affair sort of served as a precursor to the uh, Watergate affair. So, But what I really think stands out is that last day that Johnson's in office. The first thing that he does when he boards the aircraft after the inauguration and stuff like that is he lights up a cigarette, which he'd given up in 1955. And he tells Lucy after she complains, and he says to her, I've given all this service to the people. I can now start focusing on me. And we know within four years he's dead. Uh, he starts smoking again. I mean, Vietnam and the presidency crushed him. And, you know, by 19, uh, you know, he dies in January 1973, but his health deteriorates very quickly. Uh, this is a broken man in many ways. And, you know, I think what stands out is if you look at the front cover of the book, that picture in that summer of 1968, which the picture, the front cover is, uh, where he's listening to the tape of Chuck Robb, his son-in-law, telling him about Vietnam and about the deaths of some of the young men. And he's got his face down on the table. And, of course, in the background is John Kennedy's bus. I think that sums it up in many ways of the, what Vietnam did to him. Mm-hmm. It killed him. Now, was it his own making? Of course. Um, but ultimately is what takes him to an early grave. Yeah, well, because he, he barely <laughs> made it to see the LBJ library completed, I think. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and he did see it, and uh, he saw it completed. And then, you know, the last story I tell in the book is about how he goes over in December of 1972 to a conference on civil rights and stands up, and the first thing that he does is he takes the podium. After he'd been told by his doctors not to go, the first thing he does is he puts some nitroglycerin under his tongue Mm -hmm. uh, because of the heart issues. And less than a month later, he's dead. And so, again, he's a broken man by that point. Uh, partly because, uh, largely because of the strain of Vietnam, but also just the overall overwhelming nature of the uh, office, especially in the 1960s. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you uh, so much, Kyle, for that, uh, taking us through the year 1968. So for you, um, for your research, um, which is what fans of the podcast will be interested in, as far as phone calls are concerned, so did you listen to a lot of the phone calls or did you read transcripts or how did you do your research? Both. Okay. I mean, uh, those phone uh, records are a gold mine. I mean, you just get a feel for the – uh, you know, inflection 
and how he worked people. And he was a master politician, and that may not be a compliment. Um, but listening to those tapes, you get a really good feel for who he was, what he was, what he was trying to accomplish. So I would read both the transcripts as well as listen to them because, again, listening to them gives you issues like points of inflection, uh, you sort of get a better feel as opposed to the written form. So, you know, that's heavily what I relied upon. But I also relied, you know, the Johnson Library has remarkable resources, and they have the best archivists in the business. And they helped guide me through this whole process. And I'm uh, Alan Fisher and, uh, you know, uh, Brian McInerney and a number of others that were just you know, incredible. And if you ever need assistance, the LBJ archivists are the best in the business. But what I would say is that this was a fun project because LBJ just gives you such good material. And I'm writing a biography of him right now where I look at pivotal days in his life um, rather than a traditional biography. And, and so it keeps me involved with LBJ. And again, he's just a wonderful topic. And, you know, as I say in the book, a lot of the things that are going on today resonate from 1968. And have ties and actually foundations in 1968. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, uh, your phone tape, tap phone call, spying, North Korea. It's it's all there. Um, Supreme Court. Yes, it's there. Um, on, uh, so to go back to, the, to touch upon the phone calls again. So of all everything you listened to, what was what was your favorite, or do, what do you think is the most revealing phone call that you heard? The best one is when Nixon calls Johnson. To deny that he has any involvement in working with Madame Chenault. And it is an incredible conversation uh, from late October of 1968. Eddie uh, rumblings around about uh, somebody uh, trying to uh, sabotage Saigon government's attitude. There certainly have no, absolutely no credibility as far as I'm concerned. I'm very happy to hear that, Dick, because that is taking place. You know Johnson knows Nixon and uh, Nixon's people are involved. Now, can we prove that Nixon directly knew? Absolutely not. But do I think Nixon knew? Absolutely. But that taped call between them and Nixon trying to deny it and Johnson sort of letting him off the hook and being coy with him. We all want them to come and hope they'll come and really believe they'll come. I just don't think they can, but I... It's really a question of when they'll come. That's right. I said, now, this has made it difficult, and it slowed things down a bit. I don't... I know that none of you candidates are responsible for it. Because I'm looking at the transcript, and then I said, the vice president said, when I asked for comments, thanks much. Mr. Nixon said, well, as you know, this is consistent my position. I made it very clear I'll make no statements, undercut the negotiation. So we'll stay right on that and hope that this thing works out. That's the one, if you want to pick one up from this whole year, that's the one I would recommend. But, Dick, you noticed, uh, you must, uh, you must uh, have noticed that... Uh, when we proposed the date, the date was not November the 2nd, as suggested, but November the 6th. Yeah. Before, yeah, I know. before any meeting occurred. Yeah. Incidentally, we, I Smathers, under, Smathers understands that. I visited Austin for the first time. Well, yes. It's, and, uh, it's a beautiful city. It's, yesterday, we, we spoke in that new auditorium there, that, that the circular thing. And uh, I didn't get over to your library, though. And, uh, well, we haven't, got, your library is, we haven't got it built yet, but you have to... We, we're just starting on it. We're building it. Later. We're building it now. 
I get it. I get it. But it is in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you could just kind of discuss, what do you think some of the, let's just talk about the presidential um, styles between LBJ and Trump. What do you see they have in common? What, what, what's, you know, what, what's your, your, your judgment, not the ju- not your judgment, what's your opinion of uh, the presidential styles between the two? Well, there's some similarities. Uh, of course, LBJ was an insecure man uh, who compensated and overcompensated. I think the current president does the exact same thing. He's not as secure as he thinks he is, and he's not as confident as he sometimes portrays. Same goes with LBJ. But where I think there are significant differences is just the focus. I mean, LBJ did genuinely care about those that were less fortunate. Uh, he was genuinely interested in trying to create the great society. I, I don't think uh, Trump has any kind of ideology related to anything like that other than uh, you know, the cronyism and cutting taxes and following some of those lines. And this is a, just a, uh, uh, you know, a, basically a opportunist. LBJ was a consummate politician. And again, that's good and bad. And so I think they're significant. And if you look at Trump's attacks today and those of the Republicans, they're as much on the great society as they are on anything Obama did. And I think that's a misguided sometimes approach to it. Do they try to undo what uh, Obama did? Yes. But where it goes deeply to is 50 years ago with the creation of uh, many of the programs that Obama either expanded or tried to sustain, and those go back to LBJ. So, again, a consummate politician who understand political power, uh, tried to exercise it, and unfortunately his own hubris uh, brought him down as a result of Vietnam, and I think the hubris of this current president may bring him down much faster than it brought LBJ down. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see what happens there. Yeah, um, we'll see. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for your time, Kyle. You said you were working on another book. Uh, you want to just briefly talk, just mention that, and when do you think it's coming out? Or? Well, I'm working on a biography of LBJ where I'm going to look at 31 pivotal days in his life. Some are well known, such as November 22nd, 1963, but many of them are not as well known. And I'm going to try to re-envision biography, not to be this dense you know, page by page, day by day, to sort of try to take these pivotal moments and tell a a story about LBJ and, you know, who he was and what he was and how these stories sort of fit into that longer arc of his uh, presidency, as well as, of course, many of the stories before his presidency. So a revisioning of the biography to uh, make it more appropriate or more accessible uh, but still at the same time bring up uh, some very interesting stories that really highlight who LBJ was. So I'm hoping that'll be out in the next two to three years. Um, I've sort of taken a break. Uh, I've got, you know, I've had three books out in the last uh, year and a half, and so I'm sort of tired. So I'm taking a little break, and but I'll jump back into it here this summer. Uh, but that's my next project. Okay, great. And then, uh, like this last segment of the show, we like to call "Plug Away," where you can you, know, you plug in your books there. But where can people um, get a hold of these your books? Um, how can they contact you if they want to reach out to you? Do you have a website, things like that? Plug away. Well, the best way to do it, uh, of course, all these books are available. My uh, most recent books on combat soldiers in Vietnam had done extremely well and might be of interest to your audience. One's called Grunts, the American Combat Soldier in Vietnam. Another's called The Marinci Marines, A Tale of Small Town America in the Vietnam War. And, of course, this book, LBJ's 1968, uh, Power Politics and the Presidency in America's Year of Upheaval. So all those are available on Amazon. You can find them in any. And, of course, I'm always willing uh, to take uh questions or comments and my email is kyle 
uh, dot L-O-N-G-L-E-Y at A-S-U dot E-D-U. And that's my Arizona State uh, address. And so I've, we've got a Facebook page for the book, uh, LBJ's 1968. So I hope people will reach out. And mainly I hope they'll pick up the book and read it and enjoy it and learn more about the president and especially the 1968, which was, again, a year of a continuous nightmare. All right, excellent. And that has been my guest, Kyle Longley. Thanks a lot for being here, Kyle. My pleasure. All right, and um, thanks, everybody, for listening to the, This is the President, and I'll be back to you in a second. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to This is the President. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Last FM, and more. You can find episodes of the podcast available at our website, wordsoverchair.com, and also my website, scottclonico.com. Also, if you're on iTunes, be sure to check out our other podcast, Comedy History 101, which is exactly what it sounds like. We talk about the history of comedy. And while you're there, how about leaving a review for the show? And be sure to subscribe while you're on iTunes as well. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot. We'll see you again. Diaper. Melania is right now changing a diaper, probably 40 feet away from me.